0: Trinity Baptist Church, a community growing in faith, obedience, and joy.
1: I was born in Japan to a Japanese father and an American mother. We moved to Connecticut, Japan, Singapore, so by the time we got back to Connecticut, I didn't know who or what to believe. Until one day a girl in my Sunday school class said, why is it so much easier for people to believe that man came from monkeys than that God created us? School promised I'd go back to dirt someday, but... The God of the Bible promised that I could have eternal life with him. So if I had to hedge my bets on a source of truth, I decided I'd follow God in the Bible. As I grew up and made more and more decisions for myself, I continued to choose to follow God even when my family stopped going to church. It was coming here to New York City to serve with the Bowery Mission with my high school youth group once a month that drew me to New York City. So I decided to come to college to New York. And one of my friends from college was doing research in a library, and the librarian invited him to Trinity, and he invited a bunch of us. So I started coming to Trinity in 1996. That year, I was also invited to be a leader for my high school youth group trip to Mexico. I said yes, and I thought, oh no, all my leaders always knew everything about the Bible, and I don't know a single thing. So my high school pastor encouraged me to start reading the Bible every day and to start with the Psalms. By the time I took that summer trip, the scriptures had convinced me that God of the Bible was trustworthy, and I could trust him even with my love life and future, the two areas I'd struggled to trust him the most. During my senior year in college, a member of this church, Al-Murha, challenged us to get involved with church before we graduated, graduated college. So I started coming to a small group on Sundays and getting to know people at the church. The friend that invited me to Trinity also challenged me. He said, what would a tithe of your life be? If you lived 80 years, a tithe would be eight years. Well, don't give eight years to God's service, but just one summer to serving him. I thought, well, if the Mormons, who aren't even preaching the truth, are giving two years, who am I to withhold one, year, one summer to God's service? So I decided to, after graduation, go down and serve in Mexico. And I got baptized first, because how could I, with any integrity, go and tell people who decided to follow Jesus that they should get baptized if I had never done it myself? The summer was transformational, and I came back, was asked to serve on the Missions Commission here at Trinity, uh, took a course called Perspectives, and started serving there as well. Until in 2001, there was an opportunity to go back to Mexico and to lead short-term trips for Mexican youth and invite churches to participate, serving cross-culturally. So I got married to Jaime when I went down there. And in 2010, we came back here to New York and to Trinity because for me, this was home. Um... Now we are raising support in order to serve in Morocco, where my husband has an opportunity to work with a soccer nonprofit. It's something he's been volunteering doing here in New York City ever since, in a church wide study here at Trinity, he realized he could use his passions in God's service. Uh, we've been trying to get together with as many people from Trinity as we can, and the best part about it really has been getting to know people and their stories. And the only thing I regret is not starting to do it sooner. My name is Amy, and I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason... He had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. The word of the Lord.
0: Thank you, Emmy. And uh, Amy's... The Emmy's lover, if I can call him that, Jaime. Hi, he's, he's actually right over here. Uh, they have a really exciting story um, of, uh, I think, courage and inspiration. And uh, it'd be great if you guys could get to know them before they leave and um, think about partnering with them. Uh, and it's great that uh, my fellow elder, uh, Dave Page, is here. You know, um, I get to see him a lot now. We didn't hang out because uh, I just met his dad, and I think I'm closer to his dad's age than I am to his age. Um, definitely good-looking guy. You know, I told him he's like the love child between Julian Edelman, Tom Brady's favorite you know, target, and uh, Bradley Cooper. <laughs> but, you know, he's, he's very uh, dedicated and thoughtful, um, ma- amazing guy. So, uh, Dave, I'm glad you're here. Um, So speaking of Bradley Cooper, um, I have a lineup of movies I'd like you all to take a look at. So on the left, we have Meet Joe Black, all right, and this is uh, about a daughter who falls in love with Brad Pitt, and her father's not happy about it. And uh, on the right, we've got The Hurt Locker, which is about the post-traumatic stress disorder that uh, a soldier in Iraq Uh, has to deal with because he's disposing of all these roadside bombs. And in the middle, we have Babe, which is about a dog. uh, Sorry, it's about a pig that wants to be a sheepdog, okay? Um, Has anyone seen all three of these films? Ah, a few of you. Okay, so what do you think uh, all three have in common? Okay. So I thought that all of them uh, were dealing with the fear of death, right? Because um, Joe Black actually is death, and he comes for Anthony Hopkins' character, and he meets Anthony Hopkins' daughter and falls in love. And um, Babe, in the middle of that movie, um, Babe finds out that pigs are food for people. (laughs) And the rest of that movie is about how to escape that. And uh, The Hurt Locker um, is about, you know, PTSD when soldiers in combat see all this crazy violence and, and death, and death seems to be this uncontrollable force. Um, yeah. So, uh, let's see. One of the things that we uh, learned from the reading of Hebrews 2 is that uh, we are flesh and blood, enslaved by the fear of death, until Jesus rescues us. Now, I don't know about you, but I never really thought that I was enslaved by the fear of death. And Jerry Seinfeld actually has a joke about this. Um, And he's criticizing these studies where um, the fear of death is only number two. And the greatest fear that people have is the fear of public speaking. So he says that uh, to the average person... If you go to a funeral, you're better off in the casket than delivering the eulogy. (laughs) Right? So I think he has a point that there might be something wrong with these studies. I don't think most of us fear death or even think about death most of the time. But Hebrews 2 is proposing that death is a heavy influence on our lives. And I can think of these two reasons why. Uh, One is, is that... We want to do or to have as much as possible before we die. Uh, And the second thing is, is that we want as much meaning and pleasure in life as possible before we die. So we either want as much as possible with the time we have or we want the time we have to be as pleasurable or meaningful as possible. So think about the seven deadly sins. There's pride, anger, lust, gluttony. Greed, envy, and sloth. Life seems better, it feels better when we're better than other people. So superiority over others is our idol. Or we get angry when we don't get what we want. Sex and food and money can become these idols to us. Uh, We're not satisfied because we want what other people have. Or... Life is better when we can avoid hard work. So it's not getting what we want out of life. That's this fear of death that enslaves us. A couple years ago, uh, my doctor told me that um, I had too much sugar in my diet. So I've cut way back, and the tests are better now. But sometimes I'm still tempted. You know, I hear the whispers, oh, you've been good all month. You know, just put a little uh, sugar in your coffee like you used to. Or, uh, you know, don't throw that snack out in the kitchen. That's such a waste. You know, or I'm walking down the street, hey, there's a Dunkin' Donuts, you know, and (laughs) I hear the whispers, you know. And just the way sugar is for me, so is pride and uh, anger and gluttony and lust and envy and sloth. And Hebrews 2, uh, again, that was read for our hearing, says that the devil holds his power of death over us until we're freed by christ so we're going to talk about christ in a few minutes but i wanted to take a moment to think about the devil now early on in the bible in genesis chapter 3 there's this crafty serpent who appears to adam and eve in the garden and um you know it's debatable if the serpent is actually satan but because john in the book of revelation refers to satan twice as that ancient serpent um i think it is satan Anyways, the serpent comes up to Eve and says, God said that if you ate of this tree, you would surely die. You won't surely die. You'll become like God. And um, so Adam and Eve, you know, they decide to eat of the tree. So God said that they would surely die. Satan said the opposite, but what happened? They died. And uh, ever since then, all of us who follow them into life also die. Now, I think logically, every fear that we have in life has to be smaller than the fear of death. Because if you think about it, what fear do you have that's still relevant when you're dead? So... Uh, Number two, as much as we fear death, the devil has his power over us, tempting Eve, tempting even Christ, as we're tempted. So Eve was in paradise. She wasn't afraid of death. She let the devil talk her into death. And before that, the devil didn't have power over her, but now he does. So... She and Adam chose the lie over the truth, he took them over, and it turns out you are the target of a hostile takeover. You might not even know that. Satan tells us very similar lies. He says, you know, if you want something so badly, then it must be good for you. It's going to make you more like God. And we want that. We want to be like God. Adam had this problem of wanting his perfect partner, slash messy partner, to be happy. And so he chose her happiness over God's happiness. And that's something that I can understand because I don't see God the way I see people. I don't hear God's voice the way I would hear your voice. And so sometimes I might love the person more than who created that person. And just like I can choose to love myself more than God, I can choose to love other things or other people more than him. In the book of Ecclesiastes, uh, King Solomon, the wisest person who ever lived, you know, he uh, was in search of this great life, and he didn't leave any stone unturned. He built all these great edifices, even the Temple of Jerusalem, and, um, you know, he gathered all this wealth to himself, and... He was into food, and he was into wine, and he was like a scientist, and he gathered all these beautiful women to him as well, maybe like no other. Uh, But in the end, after all of that, after he lived that full life, he says, everything is meaningless. He says, a stillborn has a better life than a billionaire. I mean, imagine that. Everything is meaningless except... To enjoy the fruit of your labor, whatever the fruit and whatever the labor, and to fear God and keep His commands. When we fear God, we don't fear death. Now, there can be times when we're chilled to the bone by the specter of death that we feel is hanging over us. And, you know, this can paralyze the way we make decisions, uh, we can get into Unhealthy ways of coping with that type of fear. But either way, this fear of death is still haunting us. We can't escape it. Have any of you here heard of the Streisand effect? Okay, it's named after Brooklyn's own Barbara Streisand. In 2003, someone took a picture of her home in Malibu and posted it online. And she wasn't very happy about this, so... She got her lawyers to sue to take the photo down. Unfortunately for her, they lost. But the interesting part of this for me is that before the lawsuit, only four people had looked at the picture. After the lawsuit, 420,000 people looked at the picture. So she made this mess 100,000 times bigger than it was. And so the Streisand effect demonstrates that sometimes when we try to clean up a mess, the mess gets even worse. And I'll read what Emmy read again. Um, There's a theology of the Streisand effect, right, in verse 14. Since the children have flesh and blood, Jesus shared in our humanity so that by his death he might break him who holds the power of death and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Now, do you think that Barbara hired these lawyers because she was afraid? Do you think that the media reported the story because they were afraid? And do you think these 420,000 Internet users went to look at the picture because they were afraid? It seems like a stretch, doesn't it? I don't think that any of these people were thinking about dying. But I think that they were trying to control the situation. And when people take control of a situation, they end up making a bigger mess. Now, I'm not saying that everything we touch is doomed. I think that there is progress that we can see. I think that there is less suffering now in this time in history than ever before. Uh, I think some of that is because we have a healthy church in action. And people of faith and people without faith, you know, we can learn from our mistakes We can discover. We can invent. And we can bring some of uh, the kingdom of heaven down here to earth. But Jesus told us we would always have the poor. We would always have war and rumor of war. And I think all the data, all the history we have, basically proves his point. It doesn't mean that we need to give up on compassion or reconciliation, peacekeeping. But flesh and blood... What that means is that we make bigger messes. So we've got idioms for that in our language, like out of the frying pan into the fire, right? Or uh, more recently, epic fail, right? All right, here's an example. Five years ago, I thought it was great that the US went and got a UN resolution to try to protect the pro-democracy protesters in Libya. But what ended up happening here? the, The whole state failed, right? Gaddafi was kicked out. And it became a base for ISIS. So because ISIS was able to grow strong in Libya, now they're in Syria. And North Korea has been watching this whole thing. They're pursuing this nuclear weapons, even more aggressively, this nuclear weapons program, because they saw how we were dealing with Libya, and they're like, you know what? We need something in our calculus that will not have that happen to us. And they know that nuclear weapons will help them do that. So, you know, we try to fix something, and we can make it worse. Another example is the Exxon Valdez. Uh, This was a big oil tanker that uh, hit a reef in Alaska back in 1989. Um, The captain was a mess. The radar that could have detected the reef was a mess. But what happened after the oil spill is they tried to clean it up with these chemical dispersants. And these chemicals they use could be actually much more harmful to the environment than the actual oil that was spilled. And, you know, I'm realizing as I'm looking all this stuff up that I indirectly buy oil from Exxon. So I'm a small part of this mess because, you know, I I want some hot water in my showers or I turn on the air conditioning or, you know, I don't walk everywhere. You know, sometimes I even get on an airplane and that uses fossil fuels. You know, um, I bought a Case for this tablet. It's made out of plastic, and uh, I charged it before coming here, so I feel like I'm connected to what happened in Alaska because I buy that oil. Um, it's a little bit like what previous generations were doing with asbestos. Did you know they made suits out of asbestos? They were basically putting it everywhere because it reduced the risk of fire, not knowing that it was really bad for our lungs. So. These type of things that continue today. Uh, Back in February, um, they had these Academy Awards, right, the Oscars. And they were, at the end, just giving the final envelope out. And um, they happened to have these auditors from one of the most prestigious firms. No offense if you work for this firm, but they they had um, this firm controlling the whole process all the envelopes and um, the auditors it's a plum gig so they were like carefully selected and all the other envelopes have been given there's just one left to give and somehow they managed to give out the wrong envelope to to the presenters so the uh, la la land uh, people come up and they're giving their speeches at the end of the show and then somebody has to say wait Sorry, we made a mistake. And Moonlight actually won for Best Picture. And uh, I just saw Faye Dunaway, one of the presenters of this award, uh, on TV this week. And she said, you know, I still haven't gotten over it. And, you know, all these people that I've talked about, I can't judge any of them because I know I make messes, too. The reason I know a mess when I see a mess is because I am a mess. Um, My wife was sitting here in the first service. She's not here, but you could actually follow up with her later and say, you know, she'll tell you that I'm a mess, right? And it's not just because uh, I don't put stuff away, right? Back where it belongs um, or where I forget to put it. I make lots of other messes too. Uh, Sometimes Alice and I, we just talk. You know, we're married to each other. It's a good thing to talk to your spouse. And, you know, she'll bring up Something difficult she's facing at work, or we'll talk about one of the kids and you know parenting them, and uh, she'll talk to me about it. And then I'll say, "Well, here's how you can fix that." And uh, I do that because if I brought her a problem, I would expect her to give me advice on how to fix it. But it turns out that's not what she wants. So she just, I guess, wants me to know what's going on with her life, what what's occupying her thoughts and feelings. And, you know, we try to communicate, but we end up fighting. So she'll say, you know, um, here's what's going on, and what do you think? And I'll be like, oh, you can fix this by doing that. And she'll say, I don't want you to fix it. Just listen. And I'll be like, well, you need to fix it. And, you know, where we once had this lovely marriage now she's a mess and i'm a mess and our marriage is a mess and she's not even fixing that first mess you know so andy stanley talks about how we shouldn't judge other messy people but we do and it pushes people out of church you know instead he says we should remember that i know a mess when i see one because i am one and if churches had this attitude accepting messes instead of judging them or rejecting them then more churches might be growing instead of dying and so hebrews 2 says jesus came to get us out of all this mess god loves us so he gives everyone the option to be a mess and everyone exercises this option sometimes many times in a single day John 3.17 says that God sent Jesus into this world not to condemn the world because of all the mess, but to save it through him. But this isn't the love that people experience sometimes when they come into church. We don't ask a person about their story. We don't show them compassion. Uh, One great thing that Pastor Keith uh, has done over the years to kind of shape the culture here is he has people tell their stories. Because when someone tells their story, it changes how we think about them. You know, every week, messy people come to this church. And afterwards, some might say, forget it. I'm not going back to church. Because maybe some of us were critical. So I think it's a good point um, to try to figure out how did Jesus handle messy people. And um, since uh, I need to finish this soon, I'm only going to talk about uh, one instance Uh, the woman in uh, John chapter 10 who was caught in adultery, the religious leaders brought her to Jesus um, thinking that here's one way we can crush his popularity because if he shows her mercy, he will no longer be upholding the law and he'll lose credibility. But if he allows her to be stoned because that is the penalty for being caught in adultery, then he's not going to be loving and merciful. So he tells all these leaders, whoever of you is without sin, whichever of you has never made a mess, you go and throw the first stone. And ultimately, all the leaders drop their stones and they walk away. And then he looks at the woman and he asks her, has anyone condemned you? Well, then I don't condemn you either. Now go and leave your mess. Leave this life of cheating that you've been leading. So Jesus protects this woman from these critical people, even from the law that his father had handed down before he came. He sees her mess, he understands her story, and he protects her. But then he commands her to leave her life. So he rescues her from the consequences of her mess and then calls her to a better life. And I think that's the type of church that people might want to come back to. So this is the most important message of Hebrews 2. Not that we're messy. Not that the devil has power over us. Because we already know that we're messy, even if we won't admit it to somebody else. The most important thing is that Jesus is this perfect solution to the mess. And there isn't another solution. Did Jesus have a messy life? So I did this survey in the first service, and about 70% of people abstained. So I'm not just going to get the survey results. I'm going to do this meta conclusion on which congregation is more bold and which congregation is more fearful, okay? All right, so how many of you think that Jesus had a perfect life? Had a perfect life, yeah. Lived a perfect life. Yeah. Okay. All right. That's good. Like, that's good. that's good. That's good. That's like half of you. Okay. Good. So you're already ahead. All right. How many of you think had Jesus had a messy life as well, as a perfect life? Yeah. This is like a trick question or something, right? I'm just I'm just glad that uh, more of you more of you actually voted. So that's good. Okay. So if Jesus is the Son of God, which he is. Right? Just as he claimed to be, then he must have lived a perfect life. But if Jesus is flesh and blood now, hmm. He must have lived a messy life, right? I'm not saying Jesus made bad decisions like we do. But like Emmy read in verse 18, Jesus was tempted the way we are tempted. He's tempted to make a mess. I think there's only one mess, quasi mess that Jesus made. He claimed to be God, okay? The first time he did this, it was kind of subtle, uh, but there was a group of friends lowering a man through a roof uh, hoping that Jesus would heal this person. Not only did Jesus heal this person, but he claimed, he, he, he forgave his sins, right? He said, I forgive your sins, which is only something that God could do, right? And then later, uh, during his public ministry, it was Hanukkah, and uh, these Jewish people came to him and asked if he was the Messiah. And to use a poker analogy, he saw Messiah, and he raised to, I, am the, I and the Father are one. We are equal. Okay. And then there was this third time after Jesus was betrayed at Gethsemane, Uh, And he's at this hearing, and they ask him again, are you the Messiah? And he says, yes. And he says, uh, you know, you are going to see me up in heaven at the right hand of of the Father. And those last two times, uh, the Jews actually started picking up stones to stone him. Because this is blasphemy, okay? Blasphemy is uh, when someone says anything offensive about God. And that includes saying a person is equal to God. The penalty is the same that of adultery you are to be stoned to death all right we find this in leviticus chapter 10 so jesus loves us so much that he comes on this rescue mission um to save us and he leaves heaven i like to say he squeezes himself into a fragile spaceship made of flesh and blood and by telling people who he was he's guilty of blasphemy and he's sentenced to death so Jesus doesn't just die for our mess, but he dies to fulfill this law. Right? He says in the Sermon on the Mount, "I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it." Okay. Often we say that the law is a mirror that shows us that we fall short of a standard that we know exists, and that we want other people to live up to. Um, so I have kids in my apartment in my apartment right now, and. Um, One thing that I hear a lot these days is, you know, not fair. That's not fair. And um, I don't know who taught them this. I don't think anybody taught them this. But somehow they realize that there is this high standard that they want other people to live up to. And I don't know if anybody taught me that. I think it comes with the flesh and blood. So a third thing that we uh, realize from Hebrews 2 is that Jesus is the solution. He's the fully high, human high priest who also feared death and was tempted. So when Jesus was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, um, do you remember what he's praying about, what he was praying for? Right, he was asking the Father to find another way. Jesus didn't want to die. He was afraid of death just like we are. Remember when Satan went out to the wilderness to tempt him. Sometimes I wonder, Jesus, why are you even hanging out with him? You know who he is. But Hebrews 2 tells us that Jesus is tempted the way we are tempted, that Jesus is flesh and blood just like us. So he feared death just like us, and he had to deal with the power of the devil just like we do. So four, Jesus is convicted of blasphemy because he's a man claiming to be God. Does it sit well with us that Jesus is seemingly put to death under the law because he just claims to be God as a human? Does that sit well with you? The problem here is is that If Jesus is God, he actually can't blasphemy. He can't blaspheme because it's impossible for God to offend God. So the problem here is with the law. Jesus is found guilty only because he's a man of flesh and blood. So Jesus is wrongly convicted because he's fully God. And if he is judged wrongly, because he's fully God and can't blaspheme, then two things actually have to happen to right this wrong. Uh, The first thing is is that the Mosaic law that created this problem in the first place, it has to be broken. And for those of you who read C.S. Lewis, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, or if you've seen the movie, uh, you might remember that uh, Aslan exchanges his life for Edmunds, but that means he has to turn himself over to the white witch who binds him up Uh, puts him on this ancient stone table and kills him. But that's not the end of the story. Uh, Edmund's sisters, Lucy and Susan, are standing watch over him. They fall asleep, and when they wake up, his body's gone. And the ancient stone table is broken in two. And that's exactly what happened when Jesus died. And we actually sang about it in one of our earlier songs, about that veil that was torn Okay, this veil, this curtain hung in the temple of Jerusalem, and it separated the high priest under the Mosaic law from the presence of God. And when Jesus died, that curtain was torn in two. That separation between God and man was no longer required because Jesus is now the high priest, and he's God in flesh and blood. This overturns the law of Moses. So he takes the consequences for our messy lives. But there's no more separation between us and God. And to me, that's, you know, one of the main things that we need to take away from Hebrews 2. And the second thing that has to happen with this is that a just father will reverse this wrongful death penalty. So this is exactly what God does And raises Jesus back to life. So the resurrection is not just the celebration of hope that we all shared during Easter, but it's this ultimate reversal of this ultimate wrongful conviction. And it's this resurrection that is this final peace that can break the fear of death that we have. So the Father overturns everything. The death penalty, the conviction... And even the law. Okay, so we're almost at the end here. I just want to do a quick theological clarification. When Emmy was uh, reading verse 16 about Abraham's descendants, you know, when I first read that, I thought that might refer to Jewish people. But if you read earlier in verses 6 and 10 of Hebrews 2, you actually see that um, Paul is talking about all followers of God. Okay. And in Galatians 3, which is another letter he wrote, he says that people of faith are Abraham's descendants, okay? So that aligns with Abraham's descendants here in Hebrews 2. Now, I realize that there are people out there who might think that those of us who follow Jesus, that we're silly, we're misguided, that we're putting our hope in these myths and these, you know, nice stories, but... Um when you look at Hebrews 2, and you begin to understand it more deeply, um, this is something more than any legal scholar could conceive. In some ways, what God has done is still inconceivable to us. And I was thinking about this, and uh, the thing that came to mind is um, m- my wife, she listens to uh, Beethoven's cello sonatas. And, you know, any of us could pick up a pen and write notes on a page like Beethoven wrote, but we're never going to write one of those cello sonatas. It's just not possible. You need this all-knowing father to be able to write the perfect plan to rescue us from our mess. And then, you know, any of us could pick up a cello and a bow and try to play the notes on the page, but, you know, it's probably not going to turn out the way Beethoven intended You need that virtuoso, more perfect than Yo-Yo Ma, who can actually play the notes that the Father wrote. And that's what Jesus did. So these people who might think we're a little silly, let's not be critical of them. Let's ask them about their story. And show them compassion. Even if, you know, you have to go work with them every day, right? And um, be ready to share Jesus with them. Because one day, they may be able to sing what we sing. Death, where is your sting? So we're going to try and clean up all the messes we create. But that'll never be good enough. Because we can't get out of our mess under our own power. And sometimes we'll make the mess worse. Only the best high priest, only Jesus, can do that. So God is Jesus in the flesh, in blood, just like we are. But he's God, at the same time, he's one with us. And Keith said this last week at the end. So I'm going to say it again here. Uh, good enough is not enough. That's the name of this series. you got to have the best. And if you want the best, you've got to have Jesus. And what Hebrews 2 is saying to us, that the greatest work of all might not be God's creation it may not even be Jesus' resurrection it might just be his incarnation he's the only way that we could be rescued from our fear of death in our mess so that's it let's pray together uh, thank you Heavenly Father for giving us your one and only son Jesus And we thank you, Jesus, for becoming flesh and blood, for leaving the place where you were, leaving the life that you lived, what you had to come and rescue us from our mess. And we thank you, Holy Spirit, too, for coming after Jesus to help continue his work until he returns. We pray in the name of Jesus. God incarnate and one with us. Amen.